We've gone back to the top of the tree today. Um, we've got a major league staffer uh, on the podcast. Alan D. Sam Miguel recently appointed as a strategist slash bullpen coach with the Kansas City Royals. Alan, welcome along. Thanks, Stuart. Good to be a part of it, mate. Congratulations on the uh, on the new gig. Uh, you don't often get to talk to people who are working at the highest level of the game, so this is going to be pretty cool. Um, only recently kind of happened. What was the process like in, in landing this job? Um, well, it came about uh, a couple months ago. No, about a month ago. And uh, Mike Matheny, I was in Instructs. Uh, working with all the guys in the instructional league, and, and Matheny came down. Yeah, Matheny's the manager, obviously, of the club. Yeah, yeah, and Matheny came down to, to just talk to the, the young instructs guys and spend two days in town. And then um, <clears throat> a job, uh, a job opening up in the big leagues uh, with the strategist slash bullpen catcher, and Matheny put my name forward for it. And so I sat down and, and had a couple of uh, talks with uh, our assistant GM slash, no, he's the GM now, uh, JJ Bacolo and Alex Zumwalt, who's one of our other coordinators um, in the minor leagues and probably spent two weeks going through the process. I've had a really good chat with Matheny about everything and then <clears throat> um multiple calls with our GM and then uh, and finally a deal was done just before November and then had to kind of just wait until they announced it so and get all the paperwork done. Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty cool when the manager puts your name forward for a job. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great sign. Congratulations. Um, we'll dive into that role and what that entails sort of towards the back end because – You've had a pretty interesting, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, interesting journey through professional baseball. Signing as a sixteen-year-old back in the day in two thousand and four with the Twins, which was a period of time when the Twins were doing or were really active in Australia. Um, I'm really interested in everybody's guys who've signed professional deals. I'm always interested in the process. Um, I remember you as a very talented youngster. Um, when did you? When did professional baseball? kind of come onto your radar as, oh, hang on, this could be an option for me? So it was, I think it was around 14. Um, I did a workout, me and Dan Schmidt and Husey, uh, we did a workout, Dean, I think Dean White might have been already signed with them or was going to. We did a workout with the Braves and that was my first time being in front of scouts. So, Phil Dale was there, Neil Burke at the time, who were both now working with the Royals. Um, but they were working with the Braves back then. I did a workout for them. And that was a, that was probably the first sign or indication um, that maybe I had a chance to sign professionally. And <clears throat> after that, started getting like scout cards from people. I remember going to a, a, a state tournament in Redlands and talking to a scout in the bathroom one day. I had to go to the toilet. And in between, I think we had a doubleheader that day, and, and um, Wadsworth from the Yankees, I was literally in the toilet walking out, and Wadsworth gave me a scouting card. <laughs> so, um, you must have done something right in the toilet, mate. Well done. 
Yeah, I, I was, it was weird. So, like, I'd go up to my, my mum. I'd be like, hey, like, <laughs> you can just keep this. I have no idea who this person is. Uh, but put this card in your purse and we'll see what happens. Um, then schoolboys came along uh, after that in March and got more interest uh, from people. And then that's when I got an agent and then uh, went to the academy um, that year and then and it just took off from there once the July 2nd signing date was eligible. So it, it go back to your original question, it started around 14 when I had my first workout with the Braves. And and were you, like this is what I'm always interested with young players and, and we've, we're trying to educate, or probably parents, like just because you hit 450 in an under 14 game or season, that doesn't make you signable. It's the tools and the projectability. Did you have any sense of, you know, you you were an elite junior player, but did you have a sense of these are the tools that people are looking at me for? Obviously, you're a, a fantastic catcher, great arm, you know. But as a as a youngster, were you aware of like what are the assets that I have? Not really, mm. to be honest. Um, so I went into the program, uh, the waste program with Donnie Kyle and. I am forever grateful for that man that helped me get to where I am today. Um, I had no idea of what tools people were looking for. I just, I knew I was good and I thought I was good and, and played good. So I was fortunate I developed really young and I was bigger and stronger than a lot of guys in the junior level. So I threw the ball harder, I hit the ball further, but <clears throat> I didn't really understand what scouts were looking for like yeah I could throw a certain amount of velocity across the diamond I could hit the power and and all that stuff but I didn't understand that what scouts were looking for was projectability and tool sets like I had no idea so I played infield growing up and I pitched <laughs> and I didn't start catching till I was 15 because all the scouts wanted to see me catch, but I didn't understand why. And it kind of ticked me off at the beginning, and I really didn't want to catch. And it took a couple of months for Mark Pettit and Don Kyle to really get it into me that my best chance for, and people want to see me was to catch. So, um, And I'd always played at Gosnells growing up, and Corchy and, and one of my best mates, Adam Kircher, he, he caught his whole career, right? My the time then played infield and played outfield but I was always pitching him so I never really thought about catching because I had Corchy catching the whole time for me in the junior levels um so <clears throat> back to what you're saying I, when scouts and you're trying to look to sign I had no idea I just went out there and played mm. and whatever happened happened like I didn't really look into I needed to throw this hard or I needed to hit the ball this far or, or do whatever. Like I just went out there and played and and hopefully the rest took care of itself, which lucky enough it did. And so when it came to signing a contract, and obviously you don't need to get into the the the, the minutiae and, and, and the details, but like, were you just taking the biggest financial offer or were you like as a young player, are you looking like, oh, I've got a better chance here or was it the only offer or how did how did your decision, how was that shaped when it came to signing with the Twins? So my biggest issue was um, a lot of teams were holding Australians back for multiple years. Um, 
they give an example. Like Tim Canale had signed at 16. I think he didn't go over to 17 or 18. Like so the Phillies held him, uh, held him back a year. Uh, and they did that with a few other guys as well. And I, I wanted to be, I didn't want to wait. <clears throat> I kind of wanted to just get over there and see where I matched up against these guys. And if my career didn't work out by the time I was 20 or 21, I could move on with life and, and work a normal job and, and move on. So I didn't want to be waiting. So when it was coming to the sign period, like I wanted to make sure I had a guaranteed visa for the next year. And the twins had offered me at the um, Major League Academy on the Gold Coast. Um, and that was probably a two-week process of negotiating with them. But one of the biggest things was I, I needed a, I wanted to make sure I was heading over that following year in 2005. And I wasn't, I didn't want to be held back. And, and, and how he, how we North could do that for me. So, um, and it was also comforting that there were plenty of Australians at the time with Minnesota. So I wasn't going to be like a lone ranger out there um, all by myself that didn't know anyone. So I had plenty of people around and I had Husey there and Trent Olchin. At the time, Balfi was there. So there was a bunch of bunch of really well-known Australians already at the organisation, which made it even more easier for me to sign with. Hmm. And um, I kind of like to ask this question of everyone that's played professional baseball, but <clears throat> on a scale of one to ten, when you finally hit spring training and you're a, you know you're a young kid, how ready were you? For the most part, I I was pretty prepared. Um, I had enough people around me to guide me and prepare me and get ready. Um, I think the biggest problem that I wasn't prepared for was the amount of throwing. And so my first year, I got really bad bicep tendonitis after spring training um, because I was going bullet to gate 100 miles an hour trying to impress everyone on day one. (laughs) And I didn't really understand that part. But for the most part, I thought I was pretty prepared from Donnie and Husey and that getting me ready for spring training, um, understanding that it was going to be a marathon and a grind. But I think the, the, the hardest part was just more the arm care and taking care of the arm and being able to throw every single day. And that's one thing that, we kind of just don't do an Australia because we're not at the ballpark every day. Mm. So, and that's the biggest thing is, is it's more just understanding what the physical toll is going to be like on your body. So, and what's the? I guess we've spoken to pitchers and and you know, infielders, and you know they've everybody said like the workloads just ramps up and whatnot. But as a as a position player or a pitcher, you kind of have you got to. You, you hit and then you you do your defensive work and you're kind of done as a catcher. Like what's what's the life of a minor league catcher like? Because you not only have to get your own work in, but oftentimes you're catching pens and you know then you're game planning and that sort of stuff. Like how 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 much more work is involved in? This is your chance to really sing the praises of catchers here, mate. But how much work and what's the life of a minor league catcher like? It's it's tough, mate. People don't understand the wear and tear that you're going to get on the body and mentally and so like I'd go to the field I'd try to get my workout done before the start of the day so I'd go to the field work out in the gym get something to eat relax 
then I had to go do early hitting in the cage. And then after that, um, run, stretch, and throw with the team. We'd do team defense. I'd then have to go and catch bullpens and then hit. And then I'd hit on the field. And then after that, I might have to go catch more again in the pen because guys might need it extra work. And that's when the pitching coach was available. And then go in, <clears throat> get something to eat before the game, go over game planning, get ready on how you're going to approach <clears throat> each and every guy with the pitching staff. And this is not just one pitcher. There's all the pitchers. Mm. And it was every day. After that, go out early, run, stretch, throw, get ready. And you're out there before everyone else is because you've got to be out there with the pitcher. They've got a long toss. You've got to make sure your body's loose, catch a bullpen, get, get him ready for the game, and then go catch a nine-inning game and try and hit it at the same time. And after that, you're like, you should be mentally cooked because you've, make, you, you've given it your all for that day. You should be mentally cooked. Then you've got to go home. It's midnight by the time you get home. You don't go to bed till 10, uh, 2, 2 a.m. in the morning. You've got to make sure you get your sleep and rest because you've got to do it all over again the next day. And then you've got to do it for 140 games in a season. And, li- and that's only in the season. Before that, you've got 20 spring training games you've got to do it for. And if you go and play winter ball, which I always did because I love coming home and playing winter ball, you're going to go play another 40-plus games, 50 games there. So you're literally racking up 200 games a year just trying to get like <clears throat> get ready and, and try to reach your goal playing the big leagues. <laughs> the other thing is that's quite the, and you're getting paid uh, $600 a month for the pleasure as well. Yeah, uh, getting paid nothing. <laughs> the um, the other bit that I'm always interested in with with catching is you know the, the almost the requirement to build rapport with the pitcher. So, you know, you sort of, they trust you and, you know, like how, how hard is that to do? And, you know, obviously you play 140 games, so you've got a guy for a season, but the team changes almost every year. How hard is that to do? Um, and, oh, and, and how important actually is it? That's the other bit. It's always talked up, but is it that important? For me, that was always a major component of my communication and, and trust with pitchers. And I was a, pretty good game call in my whole career and I took pride in it. And like I would go and during BP, I would go and just stand with the new pitchers that come into town and just talk to them. Like, what do you got? What do you like to do? What do you like me to set up? Where do you like to throw pitches in certain counts? Are you confident? And this is just learning, right? All you got to do is have a talk. And the same thing, you just keep building relationships. You're in the clubhouse, you're playing cards, play cards with them. Like, Get to know them. Get to know who they are. It was, it was always a huge component of, of my team chemistry and, and building relationships with guys. And then over time, your reputation can get bigger and, and better. So that reputation got better. So it was easier for pitchers than to just come in and talk because I was open to talking to guys. Mm. And when you say game calling, can you just elaborate on that a little bit more? So I was, I was pretty good at a at calling a game, what, what do you mean by that? Basically, getting guys out. Yeah, right. So it's simple. It's, it's, it's and it's, I, I call it the chess match, right? Because you're going to face a team for three or four games in a row, right? And it's not necessarily setting up the first day of just trying to get them out. It's trying to get them out for the three days after it as well. And it's like, how do you do that? Well, 
uh, you, you, you can pitch a guy the same way every single time, but what happens if they start making adjustments? And the higher you move up levels, the guys make adjustments way quicker. So it's like you go from rookie ball where they don't make adjustments until next week. Well, you get to A ball, they start making adjustments <clears throat> three or four games in. And then next thing you know, you're in double A, triple A. It's like, well, guys are making adjustments per at bat or per pitch or mm. per pitcher. So it's like, then you have to un- understand and identify how to get these guys out multiple different ways, not just one one. And how do you do that? And start breaking down swings and setting up pitches. And, and that's the chess match of the whole thing. It's like when you play chess, you're, you're setting up moves, not for the next one, but for eight moves down the, down the road. And like, when this guy does this and this guy does that, it's like, all right, well, I've got a counter punch to, to do this and to do that. So, so we got a little nerd corner here because <clears throat> happy to go down a rabbit hole because I'm interested. So when it's yeah start of the season, I'm guessing that the information, the data you have on players is not so great. So as a catcher, like how are you picking up? And you know, this is sort of lifting up the skirt here a little bit. Are you like are you able to watch? and see what a hitter's doing mechanically during that bat and then kind of make decisions on that? And that's how you kind of are, are planning to get them out? Or how do you start to form a game plan when you don't necessarily have enough data on a player to see what they're doing? Um, I'm more, I've just always been fascinated on a catcher's ability to figure out what a hitter's tendencies are or, or doing during a game. Or, or, you know, were you taking time to watch them in BP? Or how, does, how do you formulate that plan when you don't necessarily have a lot of data on someone early in a season? So the biggest thing is to watch, for me, is to watch bat paths and bat swings. While they're hitting? A lot of guys, yeah, when they're hitting. Right? Like, well, just when, and it's just reps, right? Like, I might need, if I've, never, <clears throat> if I've never seen a guy take a swing before, if I can get one or two, if I can get one swing out of them, I can then profile that swing to someone else's swing that I've seen over my whole entire career catch. So then I can understand that, all right, well, I've seen that swing before. It's very similar to that swing plane or that type of swing that I've seen from someone else that I know the what is successful to get those guys out. And I might go and watch BP and just watch swing planes. I might watch timing. And, like, I used to love watching batting practice and just to see what they were working on and, and try to figure out why, like, see a guy just try to hit the ball the other way but physically can't well and then you just break down the swing mm. and you watch where they stride and you watch their load and timing <clears throat> and that's all in bp right this is all free information that you can just watch and then it just adds more ammo and preparation to your game calling and what you're going to call next and then it breaks down <clears throat> like i said before going into understanding when you do see a swing, I profile it straight away into, all right, well, I've seen that before. This is what's worked in the past and this is what hasn't worked. And so over time, you're going to understand that you are going to fail. And when you do fail and the dude crushes pitches, you're going to remember that. So you're like, well, I know that's not going to work if I do this here or if I do that there. So the, the biggest thing is to make sure you remember. It's it's the same thing when you face a pitcher, right? You're trying to profile them. Oh, I've seen he's got the similar stuff. I've seen this guy. Let's have the same plan and approach that I've had off of that guy. All right, and and so you just kind of keep building it and keep watching and learning. Like 
you watch a big league game and you watch any baseball, like I'm profiling that swing into something I've seen before. All right, it's all information. You can just keep learning and learning. Like, well, he's done that. He's ang- bad angles that way. His timing's like that. His leg kick. You're breaking down every part of that swing that you see so then you can understand, all right, well, process of elimination, he does this, this, and this. Well, can my pitcher do this, this, and this? And then you match it up. So do you believe, like I'm guessing every, <clears throat> every hitter has a hole in their swing or there's a weakness and, and yeah. the great hitters can fix that quickly. <clears throat> but there must be, you know, once you know a hitter's got a weakness or a hole, you must be, if the pitcher can execute perfectly, which is obviously a variable, you could get that person out every time. Is that accurate? <clears throat> For the most part, mm. I would say yes. But yeah. they're also going to get lucky. They're going to hit off the end of the bat. They're going to get jammed. It's going to bloop in for a hit. Like these are things that you you can't control as well. Mm. So, but you can the way you can execute is pitching to swing and miss and weak contact. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's the way I look at it. Like I'm looking to all right. Do I need swing and miss here, or am I pitching to weak contact? Oh, so that and, you make a decision based on look. We need this ball cannot go into play right now, so we need swing and miss. Or in the game situation here, we can get a tapper and that's a win yeah yeah that's yeah, it yeah. like like you might have a sinker ball pitching and be like all right well i'm gonna pitch the weak contact like that's it like let's get the game moving i'm pitching the weak contact how do i get weak contact all right sweet do we pitch down the zone do we pitch in do we pitch away do i pitch up in the zone to get a fly ball like all, all different ways to get weak contact and then there are situations where I'm like, well, all right, does this pitch have swing and miss stuff? Well, do I need a swing and miss in this situation with a runner at second base or do I have an open base? It's like, all right, well, <clears throat> how do I get a swing and miss? Mm. All right, and so then, and so how do I set up to get a swing and miss? So you, your, so, the latter part of your career was when velocity just started ramping up dramatically. <clears throat> Correct. As a catcher, does that make your life harder? Well, like, well, what was the impact on the catcher that, you know, we know guys, could you can make a few more mistakes because the velocity gives you a little bit more margin for error. But but then also there's this complaint from mostly the old school that just throw strikes and locate. But from a catching perspective, what, what was your take on it? Was is it? Did it make life harder? Did it make life easier? And And what is it doing to the game that these guys are just dialing it up now? Um, so from a catcher's point of view, when velocity first came in, it made things easier because there was less guys throwing harder at the time. So you might only, you might face a rotation where they had two or three or three guys out of the 12 they had that threw 95 and up. So it's like when they come in, it's like, all right, well, these hitters haven't trained to see 95 plus. So it's going to be much easier to to blow doors, right? And then just throw an off-speed pitch out of the zone in the slow down speed of up effect, right? Like some of the off-speed, they don't need to throw for strike. They just need to slow slow their timing down so they can blow the fastball by them. And it doesn't have to be located. Now, it was, it was much easier to do it that way at the beginning than it is now because now you've got to locate the velocity. 
before you could get away with it. Now you have to somewhat locate it. So that was always <clears throat> that was the easy part when at the beginning when velocity started coming in. So what was your second part of the question? So obviously, yeah, uh, I completely forgot it because I was listening to your <laughs> listening to your answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a professional! Um, so was it? Is it easier as a catcher? now with sorry i guess i'm interested to know that now guys are really dialed in on velocity what is that doing to catching or is it sort of reset where you you know you you're just executing executing the same game plan but people just throwing the ball harder yeah so now it's everyone's used to velocity Mm. right so the biggest thing is now you gotta get back to location Mm. so some pitches have high vert which Back in the day, they called it the rise ball or invisible. Now they call it, this guy's got big vert and big extension on his pitching. Mm. So he's going to be pitching up in the zone um, and stuff like that so he can tunnel his off speed off it. If your guy throws 95 miles an hour and he's got 21 inches, 22 inches of vertical, then he's going to be, the ball, the visualization when hitting is, it's going to be like 98 miles an hour. So. And especially if it's up in the zone, it's gonna it's gonna look much harder. So <clears throat> location now is, is getting to be a, a big key and, and and more important than it was ten years ago when guys threw harder. So because everyone we're all training for high velocity. We have the hack attacks cranked up to train at hitting ninety five plus every day. Mm. But because that's what everyone's throwing. So you gotta adapt and, and survive. So now it's going back to you've got to command your stuff because the stuff's getting harder and, and got hit as a training for it. Who's the firmest guy you ever caught? Oh, I caught a bunch of guys that threw 100, 101. Les Oliveris at the Twins one year threw 100, 101. Who else threw 100? Is that hard to catch? Like you just got no time to react. Is that... Most of my, it's pretty it's pretty straight to be yeah, honest. Yeah. If it's guys who throw a hundred and straight, like for me it was easy. The the toughest the tougher guys are guys that make it move, mm. think, and mm-hmm. cut. So if I had a dude throwing ninety five and ninety four and ninety five with heavy sink, their guys they're hard they're way harder to catch than a dude throwing a hundred straight. Mm. So because when they're sinking, like you just sometimes you just don't know how much it's going to move. Especially with the right hand sinker or a left hand hard cutter, and you got to move to your glove side on that inside pitch to a righty, and it's really tough. But if you're throwing 100 miles an hour straight, it's pretty easy. I, uh, I caught Josh Demount uh, with the Royals. He's one of the premium big league relievers. He throws 100 miles an hour. I caught him at the Royals, and and he throws a, a heavy high vert fastball up in the zone with a huge snap drag. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, for most of the guys that throw heavy sinkers are, or lefties that throw le- hard lefty cutters, they're the hardest pitches to catch. So, so just kind of moving along now because we finished that section with an unbelievable seventeen-part question that I forgot sixteen of the questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's uh, so? You know, you're heading into year 11, 12, 13, 14 in your career. Like, when do you realise I'm probably not going to make the big leagues as a player? And what 
And then I guess what is that process like when you start to figure out or, or what am I going to do next? You know, as a player who's put a pretty good minor league stint in, you know, what's that process like? So I got to the point in 14, I was in Colorado with, uh, I was in spring training with the Rockies in 14 and I ended up getting released at the very end, like the last day of spring training and it just crushed me. I was like, oh, is this the end? My agent told me to hang him up and move on with my life and I was still like mad. I was like, no, nah, like there's still more in the tank. Um, so I went and played indie ball that year and for me, like, I, I just didn't enjoy it and I was miserable and wasn't happy. So I got towards the end of that 2014 year and I was like, all right, well, whatever happens, happens uh, in the baseball world. And I was content and I wanted to move on into coaching um, and basically the twins had called me in 15 and I'd signed with them, but I, I'd never really... How do I put this? I was content at just going to the baseball field and playing baseball again. And I really had no expectations. Or I still wanted to play in the big league, but I was content at just... And I was happy just being on the baseball field. Um, and so whatever happened, happened. And I actually enjoyed more baseball then because I was stress-free about what happens if I got released, what was I going to do. I was just more the fact that I was enjoying my baseball and I wanted to enjoy it for as long as I can for the last year or couple of years at that point or whatever I had left in me. So um, I was always trying to work my way into coaching at some point. And then I thought at the end of the 2015 year I was going to go into coaching. And then Kansas City had called me and asked me if I wanted to go play in double A with them. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I love the organization and, and I love working with the people there. So I finished six, uh, finished 2016 and they asked me to come back again and play. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. So I went back, did the same thing and getting towards um, 2017, they asked me if I wanted to come back and play again. I was like, yeah. So at that point, I really enjoyed the last couple of years playing because I had <clears throat> just, I was up for whatever. I was just more happy that I was at the base, at the baseball field every day. So at the end of spring training in 2018, at the time, well, the GM now, uh, JJ Piccolo, who was the assistant GM at the time, sat me down on one of the bat fields and asked me if I wanted to go into coaching. And I said straight away, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Like, I was already content and happy at that point and ready to move on because I was prepared three years ago um, to go into coaching. So whatever years I had left playing, I was just going to enjoy it for as long as I could. So at that point in 2018, the end of spring, I went straight into coaching um, and worked in and extended with all the catchers and, and the hitters um, and bounced around with a couple of the rookie ball teams that year and worked as a bench coach and first base coach and got to understand how the managers do things and, and basically make keep an eye on all the catches for those three teams. So, But <clears throat> I think because I was ready to do it in 15, it made it much more easier for when mm. the question did come up 
and eight team was like, yeah, I'm ready. Like, let's do it. So then you start to kind of carve this little niche in um, strategy and run prevention. Um, so how did you get on? How did you get into that space? And and I guess it's all kind of a manifestation of the stuff you've talked about before, your ability to figure out a hitter and, and figure out sequencing and those types of things. But how, But as a coach, how do you start to be known or how do you start to drift into this into that area and then make it your own? Well, it's, it's, so it's getting introduced to all the analytics, uh, understanding the game calling part of the game, but then it's like, all right, well, last couple of years in the minor leagues I've done defensive positioning and positioning the infielders and outfielders in the right positions from the analytics that we've been given and then learning from the managers and, and I worked under multiple different managers and I think that was one of the biggest things that helped me grow and what the organisation had tried to do is to learn to um, how the managers operate and so when they're doing their running games, what do they see and what do they understand and, and holding runners and from a <clears throat> pitching point of view and calling pickoffs and slide steps and playing infield in at these times and having no doubles and understanding if if this guy's a doubles puppet hitter and late in the game, do I need to play no doubles? Or if this guy's a singles hitter, then... There's no need to play. No, there's no need to play no doubles if this guy just hits singles. So it's like just understanding the little things and little niches like that of of how to prevent runs coming in and, and help the club and breaking down pitches and breaking down hitters and how to get them out. Working with the catchers and working on their game calling, working on their receiving to get more strikes per game and and not lose strikes and put put the pitches in better counts to help them out and then analytics will show that batting averages the more strikes you can throw then the batting average number goes down and hard hit contact goes down there's a whole bunch of different things over the years that I've put together to help understand that this is how we stop runs from coming in so I want to just get into baseball for dummies for a second um, <clears throat> and a couple of things that you just referenced because you talk baseball every day that some listeners may not understand, but you said no doubles. What does no doubles mean? So you might be late in the game and you're tied ball game or you're, you're up by one run, up by one run and you don't want to get the score, the, the winning run on second base. So you're going to shade your outfielders a little a, a deeper to a point where a double can't be hit over their head. Simple yep, as that. Yep, right. Or you might shade the third baseman closer to the line so a ball doesn't get down the line so the outfielder can then cover the line. Yep, okay. Um, to hold him to a single. The other one, you and this is this is kind of relatively new, but you said like getting strikes. Now, obviously, the pitcher is aiming to throw strikes, but a big... a big development, particularly in catching, is the catcher's ability to shape the ball into the strike zone to make it look like a strike. And, this, and if you, when you know what you're looking for, it's unbelievable what some catches will do. And I was, we yeah. I joked with, with Tyler Anderson about, um, you know, like JT Riamuto, Riamuto, um, I probably butchered that, but like he just is outrageous on, in some 
instances, he'll just drag the ball into the strike zone. But as Tyler says, all it takes is the umpire to call it a strike and you, it worked. And yeah. that's an area that's sort of hard to measure. But, you know, getting strikes as a catch is a massive job. It's like if you if you can make more balls appear a strike, um, you're going to have better success. Like what – how do you work with catches on that? Well, you got to you got to break down their mechanics. You got to break down their relationship with the umpire. You got to break down a lot of different things that all add to this. So it's like one, you got to build a foundation with the umpire. You got to build conversation. You got to build trust. You got to build a relationship there. Two, you got to you got to build your mechanics to shape what you're trying to do, and everyone. There are so many different ways you can receive or slash frame a ball now. And everyone has their own velocities and what works. Now, you'll see some catches stay on one knee and, and work up. You'll see catches move to the glove to the middle of the zone on every single pitch, even if it's a, a ball at the top of the zone, the bottom of the zone, or even in the middle of the zone. They'll still move, move it to mask and shape whatever their philosophy is in doing so the biggest thing is making sure you stay underneath the ball and if you can do that and, and shape the ball and and in a fluent motion and not so stiff you're going to have the ability to, to steal more strikes over time and, and that's you get catches these days get paid really good money you look at Maldonado at the Astros like He's not a premium hitter. He's there because of his catching and receiving and game calling. And that's what he gets paid to do. Uh, Pena just signed a two-year deal with the Braves yesterday. He hit like a buck 80 this year. But he just signed a two-year deal with the Braves for really good money, and he's there to catch mm-hmm. and be a backup. Yeah. So, And these guys get paid really good money to do that because they work hard every day at making sure they're receiving is the premium and the, the very best. Mm. And they take pride in the You're talking about sort of defensive positioning and whatnot. In, in professional baseball now, is the defense moving pitch to pitch or hitter to hitter or depends? Uh, it depends. So the guys are going to move pitch to pitch depending on off speed, I would say, but <laughs> – for the most part, you, I could bring up an analytical stat chart of where these guys hit the ball, and literally, when the when the spray chart comes at me, it's like, well, all right, we have everything broken down in percentages, and all right, well, this guy for the most part, on average, is going to be building in this position because the guy's a put dead full hitter, or this guy is a slap hitter and you play more straight up. So when you look at the numbers, like it's, it's a, it's a video game now, but you still have to add in the field component, right? Like these numbers that you look at are based off of every single ground ball, every single fly ball they've hit. They don't have the averages of velocity on each ball that they've hit that they've faced from the pitcher, right? It's just the general overall population of what they've done throughout the year. So you still have to add the field component. Well, this guy's throwing 100 miles an hour versus another a sinker ball that might have thrown 88 to 92. Well, the 
they're going to be a little bit different in fielding. So that's where the field play still comes in. And what? The... And that's just time. Sorry, I missed that last bit. It's just, and that's just time of understanding. Yeah, right. What is? So, you pro- probably can't give away too much information, but you're seeing more and more players pulling notes out of their pockets, and I'm, I'm guessing it's not fortune cookie information or, or informa- love love notes from friends and family. Like, what kind of what kind of information is on those cards that they're pulling out of their pockets during the game? So each team or each organisation will have their own formula into, and that's their defensive positioning card. Right. So one team might have shades of pull or heavy pull and it'd be highlighted. And so they might have a generic position for that heavy pull. Um, uh, Or they might have full shift on it. Or you might have a number sequence where the infield's cut up into five pieces or six pieces of the pie. And on each side, it's going to be, all right, this is one through six and the other side's one through six. And on your card, you might have, all right, well, this is defense position number three for this hitter. The next hitter might have full shift, so he might be one or two on the other side of the field. So those little pieces of paper that they pull out of the pocket is all just for where the organization, where the team wants in the field on that specific guy and that specific pitcher. pitcher. Right. And it's the same in the outfield. They might have shade offo or shade in, whatever it is, like, because the numbers over time, like, you can get a 200 sample size number of fly balls or ground balls. Like, there's a pretty good chance these guys are going to hit the ball in that position. Mm. So, so before, I just want to finish up on the, I guess, the how the game has evolved in your time in professional baseball because obviously you're immersed in this data. And I want to get to the sort of the big league role just to finish the podcast. But in the period of time that you were in and playing and then evolving into coaching, like what, and that, that's been like a good 15 year period, you know, A, is it for the better in your opinion as a player and now coach and, and, and B like what, how, how much is the, what volume of data has sort of emerged? Is like, is it, are you just immersed in it or, or how do you how do you put it into play and use it? And I'm going to write those questions down so that when we forget them all, we can go straight back to them. Yeah, so I've forgotten the first one right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll answer the second one. I'll think of the first one again. Okay, so we are immersed in uh, data everywhere. We have numbers and on everything. And we have our own analytics department that gives us the numbers. And then um, we have to put the pieces of the puzzle on what we want to do with them. So everyone has their own ideas or philosophies on what they need from the numbers. So you pick what you want out of them. And then you put together your recipe on or your formula on how to win a game. So there's so much information out there now that can help you it's just you got to understand what what's right for what you need or what's right for that person or that individual so um you go back 15 years ago well there's none of that it was all trusting your eyes and then you, you would have to write your own spray charts and do your own radar gun stuff now um back then and and then keep your spray charts for the next time you face it because in the minor league especially in the minor league you didn't have 
couldn't watch video of the other teams. Like, there was no database to watch video of all the other games or anything like that. <clears throat> so it was always you had to trust your eyes and you had to have trust in what other people said too. So now it's the same thing, but you just have numbers and data to back up information as well of what you do see. I've completely forgotten my first question, so I'm just going to pivot like a true professional into another question. <laughs> How do you, you know, like we – we often talk about guys like, no, nah, no, nah, I don't want the data. I just want to react. But how do you deal with the guy who takes on too much data? Like a, a guy who you, you come from an at-bat and you're checking video on yourself in between at-bats and stuff like that. Can can you overload yourself and just start thinking too much? And as a coach, I guess that's the job as a coach is to try and balance it. But are you seeing guys kind of drowning in data? At the very beginning, yes, because it's all new to them. Yeah. So at the very, but the, the only way to teach it is to immerse, like give them the numbers, and at and that, so at the very beginning it's going to be like that. Uh, but it, as over time it will get better, and, and you get a better understanding. It's all about learning, right? Like this day and age, you got to give them the numbers, like, and then you, over time and rest, they will learn what they need and what they don't. So. And then you have to guide them along that path of teaching them and understanding on like what they need to understand and learn. Mm-hmm. So yes and no, like it just it takes time, but you've got to you've got to put them you've got to throw them into it. If you don't, then the longer you leave it, the less information and preparation they're missing out on. Mm. That's the way I look at it. So kind of wrapping things up by talking about your new gig. Um, so what, what's, what's day-to-day? What does this new role entail? And, and obviously you're at the big league level, so you're going to have information at your fingertips. But what is the job and what will you be doing? And, you know, it, it sounded pretty cool when we were talking offline, but I'd love to sort of have you step everyone through, you know, this is the impact you're going to be having at this level. So talking with our GM uh, and talking with Mike Matheny, I'll be doing, I'll be helping out any, anywhere I can with whatever Matheny wants. And um, <clears throat> lucky enough, I've had the experience of doing that in the minor league the last four years of, of throwing BP and helping out a little bit on the hitting side. And, um, I'll be helping out a lot this year in game planning um, with the pitches and preparation, which that's what they wanted me to do, and helping within the bullpen and, and catching pens and getting the guys ready and basically working with uh, LC and Cal Eldridge, who are the pitching coaches and bullpen coach. Uh, I'm basically preparing these guys as best as possible to get them ready to go into the game. And from a strategy perspective at <clears throat> at the major league level, is the, you know, like, is that is it one-on-one with players or or how do you deliver the messaging? I guess there's not big rah-rah team meetings. I'm, 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 my assumption is all sort of one-to-one, kind of working in gr- small groups, pitches and catches and position players and stuff like that. How does that, how does the delivery of that information typically work? Well, I will learn that. It's hard to answer that question because I've never been in the big league. Yeah, right. So, um, and I have no idea how they do that. And I will learn a lot next year into how they have done things um, over the last couple of years 
in the big league. But in the minor league, you'll have what we've done in the minor leagues is we'll have a huge group meeting um, and basically talk about game planning and guys with the catches and pitches and how to attack them, what their weaknesses is, what they've done, what they've done in the last five games, what they've done in the last ten games, um, and overall as a big group. And then more specifically before the game, especially with the starting pitches, so catches whoever's catching that day and the starting pitcher will then sit down and go over the lineup and talk individually again on how they're going to attack each guy um, and then go through their sign sequencing as well. Um, and that's evolved into something even massive now with multiple different sign sequences and stuff like that as well. Um, and basically preparing them that way. But going into next year, I, I don't know how they um, do that stuff, and that's something I'm looking forward to learning next year in the big leagues. So I'm guessing you're um, you know, you're in Australia at the moment, but when do you head back to the US? And that I guess that's for spring training. When does that all kick off? So I, it'll be at some point in the first week of February that I would assume that I'm heading back um, spring training. So I haven't found out those dates yet, but um, – Whenever they let me know, I'll be there. But I, I think I'm pretty sure it's always around the first week of February. Um, and hopefully I'll get that information soon. But that's the plan for right now. Well, Alan, um, really appreciate your time today. And, um, yeah, it's it's always cool when an Australian guy makes it to the uh, the highest level, be it a player or or a coach, and I don't think there's been many Australians. I don't know, has there been any Australians on Major League Coaching staffs? Michael Collins is with the Astros right now. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, yep. so it's kind of always cool when people are breaking new ground. So uh, congratulations on that. And, um, yeah, really appreciate your time, man. It's been super insightful. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it.